In the back of my mind, Christian life was a treadmill. We just slowly turn the treadmill up. Crisis is not our enemy. In fact, nothing good happens without crisis. We see people living in a kind of way that we would like to follow, charting a kind of route. I guess I'd gone from worshipping the waves that God made to worshipping the God who made the waves, and surely that's got to be so much more inspiring. So, uh, what are we talking about today? Yeah, I was going to tell you before, but then I kind of thought you didn't need to know because you'd get a feel for the conversation right away. Okay, well now I just sound like I'm unprepared. Well, it's true that we don't tell each other what every single podcast is. For example, I came in for an interview yesterday and you told me, you know, like an hour and a half before what it was. Ish. And then, you know, I looked up and read some stuff. But nonetheless. Yeah, yeah, I like the whole fresh perspective thing, you know, just that raw going for it. It's very uh, romantic uh, of us. Not like actual romance romantic, but like the romantics romantic. So... We were in the car yesterday, and I mentioned that the famous Nikola Tesla, when he was demonstrating what, you know, in popular science becomes known as the Tesla coil, he actually did it here in Colorado Springs. Yeah, the story where he's actually David Blaine. Yeah, or he's, I think that you actually called him a lightning magician is what it came <laughs> down to. Uh, yeah, but which, his, yeah. But his observation that you can pull available energy out of the air and do things with it. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway. The point is, we're going to talk about technology today. And kind of the reason that we're going to talk about technology is, I think one of the problems, you know, we live in a technologically inundated world, right? That's like, everybody knows that. But I think the observations that are accessible have all been made so often that no one cares about them anymore. Like everybody knows that social media is a constructed identity. But as soon as you begin talking about, is it real? Are you just trying to perform something? Everybody gets really bored, right? Because we know that it's not quite real, but that conversation in most cases doesn't go very long. And kind of back to our postmodernism conversation, the kind of switch flicks in my mind where all the conversation goes in one ear and out the other, which is to say when we start talking about, oh, what's real and what's not real, it's like, oh, gosh, are you going to tell me it's all relative again and how your online personality doesn't matter? I get more interested talking about, like, ghost in the shell and those sorts of concepts of, like, personhood. But I take it that's not where we're going today. Not exactly, though it would be interesting. Uh, We're talking about technology because we live in a world where we have to make decisions about technology. And I don't think that most people are walking around. And for a long time, I wasn't walking around with any kind of helpful coordinates on how do I want to think about the intersection of my life and the technology available? And then how do I want to think about the influence of technology on my life? So we're going to avoid one other pitfall. And I think it's really interesting where you I think you initiate the technology conversation and you start talking about change and you start talking about, there's this trope out there, which is that every older generation is resistant to the adaptations of every younger generation. And Right. Am I making this up or do you know what I'm talking about? 
Oh, these old kids with their loud music. Is that what you're basically? Yeah. No. Well, I, yeah, but not. It's, I mean, it's cultural, but then it's also fashion, and it, it, it permeates. Yeah, those are those shifts. But I mean, like your dad staring at your iPhone, being like, "Whoa, wait, hang on, you, the app does what? And you're interacting with how many people right now?" And well, so you, that's, that's a specific application. I heard somebody phrasing it once over a decade ago. That the generation before ours, so kind of the Gen Xers were on the fringe here, let's just say the baby boomers into the Gen Xers were technological immigrants, and that ours was the first generation that was technological natives. So we grew up in that world where I knew how to change people's ringtones as like an eight-year-old. It just made sense to me. So when you get to like apps and art, someone's dad asking them what an app does, it's like, yeah, that's just, that's just the way the world is for the most part. I totally... It's a fascinating point, and it's fascinating because technology, the language is being used there in a different way. But what I want to what I want to point out is, I think that there's an idea out there of like, well, you're just being resistant to change, or change is difficult, or any number of tropes around people who are used to one way of the world will be resistant to a change. Anyway, the point I want to make is that if you look at human history— there's like no evidence that that's actually the case. You know, it actually looks like that for however however many thousand years you want to allow, anytime there's new introduction, whether it's bronze or whether it's, you know, hunting technology, it gets like pounced on right away. And actually the resistance to the introduction of the technology as we know it it comes at a very specific moment, very late in the game. And it comes when there is a shift between technologies that we actually are able to use in a way that we understand to technologies that begin to influence us and use us in that conventional thing of you're not using your computer, your computer is using you. That's true. There's a moment at which that happens and hopefully we're going to get to it today. You blew past something pretty quickly there of like, we're we're okay as human beings with technology that we can understand and use, and we're resistant to technology that seems to be beyond our control or is shifting something about the way we like to do things um, there and using us. I think about farming techniques and the development of the plow being pulled by ox was probably pretty amazing. And I doubt many people were resistant to it because it's something that they can use and it was beneficial. Fast forward, what, 10,000 years and you've got self-driving crop harvesting machines that Wolverine is running around from. And you get a little, I don't know, like you've taken away livelihoods. You've changed the face of the planet. Now that this is actually real, this is all from Logan, but you know, that's it. That's my hypothetical example. But the point holds. So let's start with the word. So the important word here is techni, uh, which ends up being used in words like technique. But if you're familiar with it, you'll know that it means a craft or a skill, or it can actually simply describe the human ability to perform, which is actually another thing that often derails the technology conversation, actually, because people go, well, what counts as a technology? And you just go, whoa, time out. Let's define technology as a human craft or skill, and then things that are human craft or skills count as technologies. So, yes, language is a technology. Yes, marks, noises, and gestures that communicate are technologies. So, we've got this thing. We have a craft or a skill or the human ability to perform something 
is a technology. And then to give ourselves some really helpful waypoints, we're going to look at, in my opinion, the three most important scholars can already feel the academics in the audience bristling because I'm not going to name their favorites when it comes to technology and kind of take some of their core insights as tools to help us intentionally engage, to choose on purpose how we're using technology and why, and to kind of know what is going on. Okay, so the first guy, I think his, no one would challenge him for being a number one ranked seed in this tournament, is Melvin Kranzberg. He is a translator during the Second World War. Probably his claim to fame is surviving. He is in Patton's army, and he's one of two translators that actually makes it all the way through. He gets an award. I think it was a Bronze Star for interrogating some Germans. So he's a clever dude. He's clever with language. And he comes back. He becomes a, a professor. But what he's most known for is his laws of technology. Uh, Kranzberg is the first person who thinks that in order to tell human history, you have to tell the history of technology. And he's the first person to kind of outline what a study of technology would look like. And so he has six laws of technology that, and I think everyone should know the first three. Is this how like robots can't kill us and they have to protect themselves? No, that would be helpful, but that's not Philip K. Dick. That is, I don't know, someone's laws of robotics. It might be Philip K. Dick. Uh, no, that is Isaac Asimov, I think. Uh, Kranzberg's laws of technology. Here's number number one. Technology is neither good nor bad, nor is it neutral. Wait, is that law one, two, and three? No, that's just law one. Oh. So I think it's super interesting because any debate on the quality of a technology, I think, can derail here at law one, that technology is ambivalent. You know, there's like the famous Studio Ghibli movie, The Wind Rises, and kind of the the center of the plot is, hey, you can be a great engineer, but if you're a great engineer, there's still people are still going to take your advances and make fighter planes and use them in Japan, and it's going to, you know, you're going to become an accessory in the imperial war machine of Japan, and you get caught in this tension of, you know, oh, cool, you made texting, but you also kind of created online predators, right? And so people like myself, sometimes don't know how to talk about the qualitative dimension of technology. Is it good? Is it bad? And I really like what Kranzberg points out. And he goes, actually, it's not good or bad, but it's also not neutral. And he's kind of giving you this thing at the beginning, which is like, technology is inherently value-laden. It's going to produce effects on the world. And so you do not get to check out of the conversation just because it's difficult to pinpoint if it's okay to have a social media profile or if it's okay to have a Alexa device in your house that you're talking to. Real debate has to take place because this isn't a neutral thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, I mean, that makes sense. That not good, not bad, not neutral thing. <laughs> Part of me just rolls my eyes and goes, yeah, like, isn't that actually what sort of everything is? Uh, th- what some people would argue, you know, like we would say, no, there's inherent. There are inherently good things. There are inherently evil things. <laughs> but just to hear that and go, okay, no, his, his, he's pushing there for engagement because something is going to be doing both, and probably both by its use and by its opportunity. 
Yeah, and interestingly, this is very similar to the argument that Lewis makes in The Problem of Pain, where he simply goes, there are physical laws about the universe and there's free will. And so he goes, a two-by-four is just going to be hard. And he goes, the quality of hardness with which the two-by-four is imbued is not positive or negative. However, if you grab the two-by-four and exercise your free will to strike someone in the head— all of a sudden, you have this negative action. And so I think what I would add to Melvin Kranzberg's first laws that whether it's positive or negative is going to end up mostly in the way that it's used for a while. I think that eventually you get to technologies that I'm a little less reserved about. I don't know what the perfect word is. Technologies that I really don't like. <laughs> I don't mind microwaves, but... Uh, next one. Two, invention is the mother of necessity. Don't you like that? Don't you wish that you had been the one who wrote that first? And I think it's quoted all the time. Right. And so invention is the mother of necessity is just an inversion of the classic saying of, hey, necessity is the mother of invention. You're outside and you live in the desert and there's no rain, but there are these clouds passing over and you go, we need water. So we're going to make these nets that will collect dew, which will condense and run into troughs. Boom. Necessity, the need for water made this invention happen. Oh, poor fate for Uncle Owen and Baru who decided to be moisture farmers. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that's actually how moisture farming works in Star Wars. They never really explained it. I assume it's something to do with the towers. But invention is the mother of necessity goes, actually, there's this human capacity of curiosity, which is to identify relationships between things in the world and try to set up scenarios to take advantage of them. Everything from being like, hey, water runs downhill. If we put it in a trough, boom, we've got the aqueduct to, oh my goodness, the earth has these oscillating magnetic fields and this is where I stop understanding what's happening and people do all kinds of stuff like that. Right. Well, it's part of the capacity that I think is the most godlike is the, the, the capacity to be creative, right? I mean, you could say it's to love, to forgive, to you know, like procreate, you name it. But like to like, he's a creative. When you look at a mountain and you look at a stream, I, we find this all the time when we were working on the ranch in the summers, just like that question of there's got to be a better way to do this thing. Absolutely. Mother of invention. The problem is once you set something loose in the world, you have no idea what's going to happen next. And so you invent something and then it ends up creating extra industries and it, it creates effects and it creates needs. Like in Kranzberg, He's not quite a technological determinist, but this is where he goes, he identifies in the paper where he famously outlined these laws that we're totally going to blow ourselves up. You know? <laughs> so he's, a, he's not a determinist, but he's like, hang on, this thing is pretty determined. Well, but what he's just observed is we're not going to stop discovering. There's, that is, as you just described, this is a core aspect of the image of God. We're not going to stop doing what people do, which is to investigate, to create. But because we cannot predict what kinds of effects are going to happen, he's just going, we, you just don't know. You, and one of those consequences is going to be something that's totally destructive and or artificial intelligence and well, or whatever it, else. It doesn't even need to be particularly destructive. It can be something as simple as a sailboat and that power at one point in time over another civilization gave you, you were the king of the earth. So and that's not even the power of gunpowder and lead. Like, 
This is reminding me of a super good presentation I did on the Spanish Armada when I was in homeschool. You, <laughs> you're like, dang, if only I was 13 right That's now. That's a really I good example. If I was 11, I could tell you exactly what oh happened. Oh my gosh. Yeah, but I mean, it's like Hawking's, you know, caution to be signaling out into the the heavens that like things do not go well when technology is so different from one group to another. And what I love about Stephen Hawking's cautions around particular kinds of experiments, like he thinks that experiments in autonomous artificial intelligence, which obviously we're a long way from, but he just goes, okay, you cannot predict the effects of an experiment necessarily, but you can predict the scale of the effect. And if the scale of the effect is more than you're actually able to respond to, you should not do it. And so you're sending radio waves out into space. Probably nothing will happen. But maybe you end up summoning the covenant. In which case, Stephen Hawking goes, we should not do that. Until we have the master chief. And then it's okay. (laughs) I actually already am the master chief on all three canonical halos. So we have this. We have invention being the mother of necessity and, and this kind of I don't know, a complex charge to look at things are going to be made and they're going to have consequences. And so... Isn't there kind of in that uh, a little bit of an arms race to it? Like, if things are going to be made, somebody else is going to do it. Like, I might as well be the one to do it first so that he doesn't have it. Yeah, I remember a really frustrating conversation I had just out of college when a friend had gone into to work in an industry that I considered to be generally exploitative And I was talking with some folks about, man, I can't believe that he chose to work that job. And then later a friend pulled me aside and kind of went, well, he's a pretty good guy and someone's going to do that job. And that was just where I wanted to throw in the towel on. It feels like we're all living in the prisoner's dilemma, but I think that's such a mind trap of, well, someone's going to do it, therefore, whatever. And that, I guess this is really just an aside, but whatever you're talking about, that is not a good way to make a decision. Even if it's, someone's going to buy this product because it's been made, so it doesn't matter if it's me. No, that is not how production works. Or someone's going to work that job, and it might as well be a nice person. And it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You can walk with God. Let that job corrupt somebody else. Like, it's not going to necessarily make the world better just because a person who is trying to keep their heart alive happens to be working in a job that kills the soul. Uh, Yeah, this is all good. This is totally a rabbit hole. Uh, rabbit trail, rabbit hole, down the. It depends it, both things. If you're That's a dog chasing a rabbit, or if you're Alice chasing a rabbit in a jacket. I guess so. So then it would be a rabbit hole. I think we're ready for our third law. Okay, this is the one with the robots. Actually, in a way, technology comes in packages, big and small. Is that the law? Yeah. Would. Technology comes in packages big and small. Yeah, and so what Kranzberg is just talking about is... <laughs> Things are not necessarily bad, they're not necessarily good, they're not necessarily neutral. Technology is bigger than a bread box and smaller than a bread box. <laughs> this guy, I would not want to play 20 questions with. <laughs> you would be very misleading. <laughs> oh my gosh. But if you were a German POW and he was trying to interrogate you, you would probably find out where your gun batteries were. I just give him the Bronze Star now and just be done with it. Packages big and small, what he's pointing out is that things arrive all together and they tend to roll out together. For example, it's really cool to be able to refine energy into electricity, 
But until you have electrical grids and transformers, and until you've actually trained people in the skills of erecting electrical grids and ways to store electricity, none, no one of those things on its own matters. And so what he's pointing out is technology is systemic. It all kind of rolls in together, and it rolls in at one time. And so, you know, each new generation of the iPhone, we've experienced something of the kind where you look at an iPhone and you go, man, how, there are so many things going on in there, and I don't really get it, but they've got the cloud, which means they must have discovered some form of data storage that I still don't quite get, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Cryptography, blah, 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 blah. It, it rolls out a whole new way of being in the world is the important thing for our purposes. So Kranzberg has some other laws, but for the sake of speed, we're going to kind of breeze over them. I thought you said you had five laws. He's got six. Oh. Four and five are very good. Four and five are good. Actually, that is true. Four. Okay. I'm going to read you four. <laughs> Although technology might be a prime element in many public issues, non-technical factors take precedence in technology policy decisions. The human element. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah, exactly. That's all that needs to be said there. Five, all history is relevant, but the history of technology is the most relevant. Okay. And this is, by the way, just it makes sense. Not true, though. Well, wait, wait. I don't know how to understand it. Okay, right. I mean, the gospel would probably be the most relevant. But when we start this conversation and I'm thinking about technology, I'm like, yeah, there's my laptop. I'm talking to a pretty sophisticated microphone. This is all going to be completely outdated within about 24 minutes. Like, a technology is, I can, I can see it. I can name technology. And then you're like, technology is language. And internally, I'm like, oh, no. I'm like, all right, so let's go back. However, any thousands of years to when we started building buildings and having civilization. And then, then if that's what technology is, is like the scaffolding that helps to construct and progress civilization, then I can understand why he would make that a law. I don't understand it's a law so much as a word. An observation. Yeah. yeah. It's not, most of the things that claim to be laws are not. Anyway, huge asterisk here, which you have just pointed out to me we need to put in, which is the, just wait. What are you doing? And this is great because it kind of segues into law number six. So if a technic is a crafter, a skiller, the human ability to perform, what we're talking about when we're talking about technology in our world are, is actually the intersection of our skill and an artifact that requires that skill. Or another person. Or another person or a situation. But we have this charge at Ansons, which is to mature over time. And one of the things that that looks like is making decisions on purpose about the kinds of skills we're developing and the kinds of technologies that we're actually willing to use or to subject ourselves to. So that's where this conversation is headed. And the, and the reason for looking at these scholars is to kind of give this huge uh, overview of what is technology first? What's it doing? And then are there clear ways that you can think about it to help you make decisions about your world and to help you look at, you know, something you described a technological arms race. These things are real and are happening all the time. And to look at that and to kind of go, wow, I can actually see what some of the stakes there are. I, I have a pretty clear picture about what's happening in that particular form of algorithmic stock trading. To pick an example at random. 
because Kranzberg law number six, technology is a very human activity. I mean, I know. It's not a dog activity. I know. That is the one that is like, did you just want to round out your your six laws? And so you put that one in there too. Uh, well, I mean, I'm sure this guy is very brilliant because I haven't won any bronze stars for interrogating people, but there's, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I think we've, we've visited Kranzberg and the reason we've visited Kranzberg is to identify the kind of value-laden dimension of activity, the value-laden quality of technology, uh, the fact that technological advancement precedes any need for anything, and then the fact that it rolls out kind of new world systems, which, by the way, super funny. This is going to become relevant here in just a second as this begins moving forward. But Kranzberg's big example on technology comes in packages what he's pumped about is electricity. And he's like, this is changing everything. What we have is we have this thing, electricity, batteries. And then what we have are all of these existent tools, technologies, like a screwdriver. And what we're doing is we're putting the electricity into all of the tools, but we end up also making new things. So we don't only make a power drill, we also make, you know, the overnight strip mall. We made that by doing this. And it's so, because for them, the stakes were, what should we put electricity in? Is there anything that we shouldn't use electricity to do? And, you know, Kranzberg probably thought there were plenty of things you shouldn't use electricity to do. Ours, which we'll get to with our third scholar, Kevin Kelly, is intelligence. What we're doing is we're taking intelligence and we're putting it now on all our existing tools and we're making crazy things happen that way. So we just need to we just need to do a little we're going to do a detour because what we're headed to is maybe the king determinist who wouldn't say he's a determinist but his book is still called The Inevitable Kevin Kelly fascinating read and we're going to stop with this fellow in the middle of the 20th century Marshall McLuhan. This is our second guy. This is our second guy. And arguably like the best known guy. He, he wrote a book called The Medium is the Message. He wrote a lot of books, but that's the one that people know. It's okay, people, if you're like me and you don't know it. Although people, you know, Padre has never read Marshall McLuhan that I know of, but I mentioned Marshall McLuhan then one time, and he was like, oh, yeah, The Medium is the Message. And the nice thing about that book— <laughs> I, I just feel worse now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. The, well, the great thing— I think the th- reason it's memorable is you don't need to actually read the book to understand what it's about. You just need to know the title. And McLuhan identifies all kinds of interesting things, the most interesting of which we'll get to after this book. But he writes this book. The medium is the message. He's continuing. He's a media scholar. And he's one of the dudes who predicted the internet. There were a lot of scholars who predicted the internet. But when anyone predicts the internet like 40 years in advance, 40 years later, people become very interested in them. Because and what other things they were saying. Yeah, exactly. Because all of a sudden you've got this guy who can see the future and you go, what, what was he doing that allowed him to predict what was going to happen accurately and can we still use that? Mm. And in fact, all he was doing was kind of just watching human beings and the kinds of things they tended to do and was like, oh, you know what we're going to do? We're going to send thoughts through an electric grid and we're all going to be all connected all the time. Anyway, the medium is the message. The book is in the title. 
But what he basically says, actually, he doesn't totally develop this in this book, but he develops it in his preceding work, and it's what he gets remembered for, is a a medium, like a, a vessel of communication, like a TV. He goes, it doesn't matter what message you send through that medium, it's going to have the same effect. And so he goes, television. He just goes, you know what? A TV, it doesn't matter if you play Sesame Street or just nonstop violent movies. It's going to have the exact same effect no matter what you watch. That's crazy talk, right? Is it though, Sam? Is it? More brain blowing. Let's go. What, how, is, how is it the same effect? Like this episode is sponsored by the letter... W for what the heck. Uh, <laughs> how is that different than like Vietnam being televised and totally changing the public's opinion on war? Well, because they're part of the same civil shift, you know, because this, this, the same thing was happening in those where a few agencies were controlling, not controlling, uh, influencing what ends up happening to people, what they know in the ways that they think. But also on a more basic on the most basic level, this totally changes your assumptions about the world. Like, we know that television changes the flicker fusion rate of people over time. And the flicker fusion rate is the rate at which you use, it's like the frame rate of your brain. It's how many images you see and how quickly you can process visual data. And millennials we are insane. We are demonstrably faster at consuming visual information. There has been like a physiological shift because of the presence of technology. And so once again, I think this is revealing an assumption when when you say it doesn't matter what you watch or what you interact with. In this case, like it's going to have the same effect. It's not that one's going to be teaching me to be a good neighbor and the other's going to be uh, traumatizing me with the horrors of war. It's actually its effect on a deeper level of influence and the processing of information and the things that I'm drawn to in the future. That's what I mean by its effect. Absolutely. And just to jump in, you know, that video went crazy of Simon Sinek talking about millennials. I think it's great. makes great points. But, you know, he points out the thing about impatience being one of these problems that faces the millennial generation. And, and you go... Okay, so you roll out Amazon. Amazon exists. You can order through the internet. And in fact, it doesn't matter what you're selling through Amazon at the end of the day because the message that Amazon is actually conveying is not you can order an exercise ball. It is anything you can want, you can have tomorrow. And so what ends up happening to people, you know, people who order through Amazon live at a rate that people who don't order through Amazon don't. It's bigger than a bread box and smaller than a bread box. That's, I don't. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. Right. I mean, I, I have to say that Amazon Prime and two-day shipping has been massively helpful in having a small child when we run out of diapers or wet wipes or we need something and it can show up in two days. And they're like, yeah, there is that. I haven't realized that I've been living with the, I can have anything I want-ish, ish. I can't have like a Tesla, which would be sweet, that I can, aff- I can have things I can afford. Like, in 48 hours. True that. True, true. And the reason that this matters, though, is all of a sudden you go, whoa, hang on. Any technology, anything 
that I introduce into my life is going to have a kind of effect. It's good, and it doesn't actually matter that much what I do with it. This, I don't know, this for me was sort of deeply troubling because I think it, it made me go, okay, well, what are things that I already have? Let me take my cell phone as my prime example of, this is, for now, not really going anywhere. I have chosen that a cell phone, because, you know, you need a cell phone to have a job and it's just expected. But do you really? I've chosen to allow it into my life and time and it's produced like one kind of effect. And, and so the only decisions that I've been able to make are literally, where am I going to allow that thing? Like, I know that I'm not the only person at the outpost that goes, you know, we've talked about this before, but phones do not ever go in bedrooms because you end up reading the news before you fall asleep and you get stressed and you don't interact with the people around you. But just to go, hey, whatever, it's going to do one kind of thing, and that is engross, uh, distract, feed information. It's going to teach me to consume information in whatever environment it's in. So there's just going to be places I won't let it, right? Picking up when I'm laying down, rubbing your mustache. Yeah, no, yeah, definitely. I remember actually a time when cell phones were turned off at night so they could be recharged because their batteries weren't strong enough. And then the shift when they were and the, like the charging device was powerful enough that you didn't have to turn it off. And I remember not knowing how to turn it off. Like it was just always on and it was a slow creep from okay, this is going to be a nice thing for mom and dad to get a hold of you after high school and give you a ride home. Or if you're over at a friend's house and something happens, you can call if you need help to now I have this thing implanted on me all the time. I mean, it feels implanted. It's not. It's not like in my hand, like the uh, total recall redo, but it sure feels like it. And it's like, yeah, it sounds like mind-blowing to be like, wait, we don't have to have it with us all the time. It was really disruptive to turn it on airplane mode and leave it downstairs at night. Like, that was was crazy. And yet, it shouldn't be. I know. I just love, because it's like, think of all the things I'll miss. Well, basically nothing, actually. Think about all the things it actually does for you. I know. I know. Let that that moment sit there. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And that other thing? Drink, drinking it in. Well, one thing it does for you is let you listen to this podcast. But otherwise, it just lets your mom call you and distracts you from your life. Yeah, I remember when Jesse Barclow, who's been on this podcast, I had, you know, upgraded my phone. And he just asked me, like, this was a serious question. He goes, oh, so are you going to, do you think you'll stick with a smartphone? It was like mind blowing, right? Because who asks who asks the question uh, of, "Hey, is that actually one a tool that I want to let into my life?" And is do I want its effects? And then a way of dis- discovering that is, what do I want to use my phone for? How much do I want my phone to influence me? And like, you know, Jesse, I think is one of the few people I've known who's like gone back from the smartphone. He's like, "Yeah, tried it. You know, it wasn't like helping who." I wanted to be, and so I just don't use one. And it's like, whoa, dude. You cannot run across England destroying the industrial cotton spinners, okay? It's just not going to work. 
But see, this is what I thought the conversation was going to be about when you're talking about technology. Is now we're giving the people what they want. <laughs> the Luddites, man. I mean, I remember when Enemy of the State, that like Will Smith, yeah, and the other guy, Gene. where all the data was on a. Yeah, I mean, I remember being like mind blowing where it was like you can track you via your cell phone and there's satellites that can find you. And it was like, <gasps> I never thought of that before. And all the data is on a floppy disk in that movie. <laughs> I, I thought about that. Uh, I remember hearing this statistic, and I don't know if it's true or not, so I'm just going to keep repeating it until someone corrects me otherwise. But it was that things that you see in the media technologically wise are about 10 years older than what they're actually using now. And that might just be a way to be like, oh, you know, some sort of nationalism rumors to make people fear the great and powerful Oz that has just so much further ahead than you think they are. But I, anyway. If, if you don't think that's true, consider this. Reality, no, that's not the quote. The future is already here. It is just poorly distributed. Ah, uh, there you go, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we could go down so many so many little trails where we need to bust out the tinfoil hats, but uh, I don't think that's the point of this part. No, the point of this part is basically this. You can actually choose to be plugged in, to be a kind of person who is a person who is plugged into the grid all the time. You know, you can have... Alexa in your kitchen, and you can know whatever you want, whenever you want to know it. You can order whatever you want, whenever you want to order it. Like, that's, that's, you can do that. Was this you or was this Susie that was talking to me recently about how with the shift of the information, um, human beings no longer need to learn how to know things. We need to learn how to find things. I don't, I sa- it sounds like something I'd be interested in, but also your wife knows lots of... Well, she's researching some of the effects of this for dad right now. And yeah. so these th- it's the conversations you're having this weekend. Okay. Well, this isn't, you know, being... This isn't new. I'm not being a whistleblower to say people used to be able to memorize novels. It was like common practice that there is a human capacity of memory, which is all of the Iliad. All of the Iliad... Was what? Oral history? Orally passed down or what? Oral history, but not like generalities, like word to word. People knew the whole thing. And so our capacity of memory has decreased as we don't need it anymore. And I think... I have like four quotes that I can do. (laughs) (laughs) Like maybe. I think I know the phone... And isn't it so interesting that the phone numbers that I know... Are the phone numbers as that, children? Yeah, that before I had a phone. Right. And they're like in there. Five but, nine zero nine. <laughs> you can say the last digits because we don't have that phone number anymore. Yeah, but people could use it at Safeway to get our wait. Just give us points. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. No. Right. Like I. I have. Me- I have num- Yeah. No memory. Interesting. And so I think you know a real technological positivist would go, "Who cares?" Just. Distributed cognition has existed forever where, you know, there's that one room that you tend to be able to write in and you can like, and some stuff is written down, but some stuff is just the environment. Like people have always done this and now your brain just happens to be in your pocket and you can go, that's sure. I'm not saying that's not fine. I'm just saying that it's a choice about, you know, do you want to be the person who has to ask Alexa what your next appointment is or actually do you want to? 
And obviously, the way that I incline is very obvious here. Do you want to be someone who indwells your time and your body enough to know where you should be <laughs> on any day? Uh, I've got a new uh, like slogan for Ansons, and it's, wake up, sheeple. <laughs> we'll be selling hats in case you guys are interested. And if there's enough popular demand, you guys message us on Facebook. We're not on it, but we'll have our social media guy respond to it. And uh, we'll have Blaine do a wake up sheeple shirt or hat or something. If you I don't think any that. of the sheeple listen to our podcast. <laughs> well, no, they're the people that are trying to wake up the sheeple. And that's where we're going to leave McLuhan. No, one more point. The other thing that you need to know about Marshall McLuhan is he gives you this really helpful tool between differentiating between what he calls hot and cold media. And hot media provides most of the information for you, requires very little engagement. Cold media provides you very little information and requires a lot of engagement. So a movie is hot media. Because, you know... I like hot media. <laughs> well, like, right? So when do people go to hot media? Well, usually when they're just tired. You just... And a person's like, I want to veg. Well, you go to a movie because you don't have to do any work. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Someone out there is like, but haven't you seen... Primer. Yes, I have. But you know who has it? Basically everyone else. <laughs> okay, so this is, we're not talking like cinema well, art no, film yeah, here. No, it's true. I, 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 there's part of my brain that is always analyzing, oh, that's an interesting shot. And you know how like she's moving from right to left across that screen? That's actually a technique for going backwards or regressing and left to right is concerned with forwards. So there can be some engagement. It's not all. It's just a little bit of mind there. But I would say that we could use our own example. The magazine, Form of Ann Sons, is very cold. Yes. And is hard to engage. And this podcast is a, a slightly warmer. Well, let's say slightly. I'm not going to say it's hot. It's definitely lukewarm, though. It's Yeah, I mean, have that lukewarm miso soup that is this podcast. That will never be our slogan for this. <laughs> not, it's not nearly as good as the sheeple thing that you did earlier. So, hot and cold media. And <laughs> I, there could be like a dietary slogan here of like, you know, make sure that your hots don't outweigh your colds. Or listen, if look at all the media in your world. And just go, how much work do I have to do? Because, you know, actually part of our creative capacity is people is work. Part of our maturity is work and skill. And basically, if all your media is hot, safe to assume you don't have very many skills. Sad, true. You know, if you watch a YouTube video, every time you need to do everything on your bike, it's hot media. Not actually developing the craft of like, arriving at the point where we're slowly arriving of someone can roll in on a road bike and we can look at it and go, oh, this and this and this and this need to be done. And I actually don't need to look it up anymore because I've done it enough times that I have the manual skill. Last guy. And this dude is Kevin Kelly. He has a podcast called Cool Tools, which is a lot of fun to listen to, actually, which is he's a super smart dude and a futurist. And the founder of Wired Magazine, his name is Kevin Kelly. And if you were Kevin Kelly, would, what would you do a podcast on? Maybe computers, maybe, I don't know, something to do with Wired Magazine, which you started? No, you just do a podcast on cool stuff <laughs> like, you know, Bluetooth keyboards and sun umbrellas and good travel neck pillows. But it's great. It makes a lot of sense, actually. He's, yeah, he's a, he's a world-class traveler. Kevin Kelly is our stopping point because he is our most recent guy. And he, you know, he's not Melvin Kranzberg going, yeah, we're going to blow ourselves up. And then, you know, we do. And he's not Marshall McLuhan going, they're going to make the internet. And then we do. Kevin Kelly is here. 
in the present tense with the rest of us, but just looking at like, hey, uh, technology has a lot of momentum and that momentum is going to keep going one way. And, you know, so Kevin Kelly would be the guy who goes, listen, surveillance, it cannot be stopped. All of you security freaks, it's just, you know what, that the momentum is so powerful behind that. The infrastructure is so well-developed. The technology is there. It's just going to happen. Like, And I think Kevin Kelly would listen to this podcast and go like, oh, you guys are doing your people a huge disservice because everybody having implanted computers is going to happen. The momentum's there. What you should be telling is people how to effectively operate with that implanted computer. But, you know, not being determinists, being people who are like, you can make decisions about your life. I don't agree with Kevin Kelly very often. Except for on the neck pillows thing. Spot on. I mean, he recommends a really good one. You can listen to his podcast with Tim Ferriss. They cross-posted. But what the reason we're going to land at Kevin Kelly is Kevin Kelly identifies our moment. We, you know, and we talked about this earlier, the first kind of generation of massive technological change just at an unprecedented scale was the distillation or the refining of energy into transmittable forms, aka electricity, and then you can add electricity to anything. But now we have this different thing, which is machine learning or the expert system or aka, you know, the algorithm. We have the intelligence and you can add intelligence to anything. So we had a screwdriver, great tool. You know, it's a it's a mechanical tool that just takes advantage of laws of physics that are just out there about torque, the inclination of objects to twist around an axis. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But then we, so we have a screwdriver and we then have add electricity and we have a power drill and then you add intelligence and you have a power drill that can detect what it's screwing through and like adjust everything about the drilling power and velocity to make a perfect hole, right? So that's where we are. And the reason it matters is as soon as what you're adding to things is intelligence, this is where I think the conversation becomes like, oh, hang on. Because what intelligence does is it, ne- it intelligence runs on data. And what human beings are really great at doing is like staying alive. And just by do- going around yeah. your day, some would say, okay, <laughs> in the long run, maybe not so good. <laughs> But we do provide a lot of data to the machines. And maybe this is not news to you. Probably not. Maybe you don't care. But here's why you should. Is that anytime you are participating in a system where what you are primarily doing is supplying information to services that just exist out there, you're essentially submitting yourself to something that wins the more it's able to adapt your habits. And and this is why, you know, there are like location services on my phone that I won't allow. Simply because I don't want a lot of the apps receiving the free information of where I am and then having the advantage of being able to recommend locations to me rather than actually Sometimes it's helpful because it's like someone pointing out to you, hey, do you know that you always kind of like, I don't know, go to this coffee shop? Maybe you should go somewhere else. But most of the time it's like, hey, if you leave right now, 
You know this. Your phone will do this. If you leave right now, you can make it to Switchback Coffee, great coffee shop, in five minutes. And then it begins, you know, reinforcing your behavior. And so I'm just like, uh, no, I don't want you to know where I am because I want to be making my own decisions about how I want to spend my time and where I want to be. So this is our last, like, technological heuristic is the world changes as soon as the the power that you are adding to something is intelligence. As an aside, you can actually trace or view the history of technological development as increasing the per capita force or the, the per capita energy, actually, would be more accurate. So, like, how much power is available to a given person at one time and if the entire brain of all human beings across history is available to a person at one time. That's a lot of power. Anyway, algorithms, intelligence added to things, it's this, it's this big question of where am I going to let that in and where places that I'm comfortable on purpose letting this additional energy, this additional force, which is intelligence, into my life? And where am I just going, uh, no, I, I don't want to be that kind of person, so I'm, I'm going to simply draw a line here mm-hmm. for my own soul. Yeah, it feels like, I mean, this is true with uh, most books and most philosophers, is that you could reduce a lot of their thoughts to a simple sentence. And I think that that's probably it for this podcast, is that like encouraging the proactive choices to be to be engaging where we want technology to be in our lives and where we don't want it, where we want to be using this tool and where we want to have space from it, where it's controlling us actually and where we control it. Um, like that that's the whole point of this podcast. And assuming that you are listening to it and not zoning out, you're the kind of person who would benefit and has been like wrestling with these things. The the thoughts and the philosophers, like the whole the point is, once you like agree with that concept, then there's all of this other meat to to be gained from it and to be informed by it, rather than just come in here and do the 30 second podcast little thought, which frankly is what the rest of the media is trying to give you. These you know listicles and inspirational quotes on Pinterest they get passed around. I'm sure everyone on here has a Pinterest account, um, but you know your mother's friends do when they send you those things. So uh, yeah, like listening to this again, I, I it has been it's been a recent shift for us. Like it. Uh, didn't come right away. I don't have the natural tendency to be, I think, skeptical or standoffish to new technology. I, I like I like things that make my life easier. I like things that make things more connected. Um, I was reading this article about the difference of apps in China, about how they, on a single app, can have their whole lives running. And, and the, the, the problems with that, when you can call a cab, go to a restaurant, have a reservation made, order and pay and do your taxes all in the same app, like how convenient that is and yet how also convenient it is for that to be monitored. Like it's been a recent shift for us. Um, And not to say like, hey, if you're listening, you need to wake up and we'll be selling tinfoil strips for hats and recommending turning your phone to grayscale like Blaine has. But instead of be saying, again, these are pieces of our society. These are aspects that are going to continue. And 
to be proactive in the ways that you want to be using it. There are times when I need to be distracted and it's been a long day. I, 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 need, I need the five minutes or two hours, whatever like margin I can get to be distracted and breathe. And there's a difference in the ways that I'm going to do that. Is I'm, Am I going to go for a walk? Am I going to sit in the backyard? Am I going to jump online and shoot some people on PUBG? Like I, they're going to have very different effects on me. And I'm not saying that I always choose the best one, but it is definitely like this conversation around technology is, I mean, it's back to that first, that very first law, that very first quote of it's not necessarily, it's not inherently evil. It's not inherently good. And it's definitely not neutral of like language is a phenomenal technology. The ability for me to record these words and for you to listen to them while you drive a vehicle on a way to a job that uses technology in probably thousands of ways, like has tremendous impact on your life and the, and the life that you're able to lead because of it. And I, I mean, you we joke about the people of the ship on Wally, and that, that that feels like ten years away. I know it's not because it's a. Uh, it's sort of satire. It's sort of a play on the future. But in many ways, so many of those things are actually already here. Ways that I just let myself coast through, um, let things be dictated and take the easy way out. Um, and so I think I would encourage you to, to, pick, to pick something. Like maybe your mind was blown by the idea of not having your phone in your bedroom at night. That's actually something that most powerful CEOs and creatives have learned of like, it is not good. Nothing good. Morgan had this quote for us in high school of like, no good decisions happen after 11 p.m. In the backseat of a car was the full quote. But I mean, just you do, there's nothing you need. If someone really needs to get a hold of you, they can. Like they will probably. Now there's exceptions to this, of course. But most of you are not the exception. And there's going to be these this pushback. It's one of the biggest pushbacks we get at the retreats, right? Like as soon as the retreat starts, it's this is a technology-free zone. Turn off your phones. And everybody internally is like, no, I'm not going to. And it's like, uh, just be aware of your reactions to even shifts of ways that you use it. And I think it's uh, it's definitely a conversation that is worth having and worth having all those. Like I want to go down those rabbit trails. I want to have people on. We've got friends who are working in artificial intelligence, we've got this conversations we can have on all those different side paths, but this one really does seem to be like technology's effect is really quantified, qualified by its role and its use and be aware of the ways that you are using it in your own life. That's huge. I think I just want to add three examples that have been helpful here at the end. That's well said. Uh, I think you know, we, we talk about not having phones in the bedroom. Here's another really obvious one. Are you able to do a screen-free Saturday? Are you able to have a day of the week where actually you don't do anything digital? That would be, that. that's hard. But again, even as Sam was mentioning, like, it's not just the discipleship circle that has seen the value of this. Uh, I think another one is, uh, think about your joy. Is all of your joy linked to uh, a screen, an app, an algorithm? Are there things that you like to do uh, that you can do outside of the space of algorithmically driven technology or, or digital? If, that's a, if that is kind of an ish, that's a huge opportunity to go, actually, I want to be someone who can enjoy 
you know, the material reality of a little bit of quiet and a little bit of work, um, even if this is just, even if this is just playing catch in the front yard. And I think the last one is that heuristic of hot and cold media. Do you need hot media all the time? And just begin to look for, are there simple places that I can just swap them? That I'm using a, a TV show, but, and I don't think there's anything wrong with watching TV shows, actually. Like, I love the one Meat Eater, to pick an example at random, and really trying to figure out exactly how to butcher a deer. But you don't need that every night of the week, you know? So if there's, is there a place where you can go, actually, that night, I... I, I want my brain to just go into rest mode, but I also want to develop my soul. And so I'm just going to switch for book, magazine, instrument, something. Even actually, I'm sorry to say that this podcast would not count. This would be too warm. You're going, you're looking for a swap with very chilly media simply to begin shaping your time uh, to give your heart actually some room to develop. Thanks for listening to the podcast today, guys. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we hope that you might send this along to someone in your world. I'm not asking for a five-star rating or a review. Rather, that if something about this podcast struck you, that you might pass this off to somebody that you think would really enjoy it. Looking for more? Good news. There is a new issue of Anson's Magazine. If you're listening to this after October 10th, if it's before October 10th, you can just wait. And there's always the chance we might be late. Sometimes we send you guys over to social media to keep up with us, but so little really happens on social media now. That's kind of a moot point. And make sure you keep your eyes peeled for our films rolling out in the fall. See you guys next week.